Uh, hello, and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, Season 2 of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Adam Kingsmith, and I'm a PhD candidate in politics at York University. And I'm Aris Komporosos Athanasiu. I'm an associate professor of sociology at University College London. This season, our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies, conspiracy theories, and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. Uh, and my name is Max Haven. I'm Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice. And this episode, we are pleased to bring you the second part of our interview with Wu Ming Wan, who was an original and ongoing member of the Wu Ming Collective, which was founded in Bologna in 2000, and has, since that time, published several collaboratively written novels, including 54, Manitowana, Altai, The Army of Sleepwalkers, and The Invisible Everywhere, which have been translated into many languages. Now, as we discussed in episode one of this interview, Wu Ming evolved out of an experimental collective called the Luther Blissett Project, whose famous 1999 novel, Q, focused on conspiracies of liberation and repression during the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. Now, more recently, that novel and the Wu Ming Collective have been the subject of a great deal of speculation, some of which they, as they described in our last episode, themselves orchestrated or perhaps at least encouraged around the rise of the QAnon conspiracy fantasy. Now, in our last episode, uh, which you're invited to find at our website, conspiracy.games, Wu Ming Wan uh, explained to us how the origins of the Luther Blissett project in a kind of pranking and gaming against the society of the spectacle evolved into the Wu Ming collaborative project, but also how it in many ways predicted, and some would say even set the stage for the kind of mass participatory gaming that has uh, seen such terrible consequences with the QAnon conspiracy theory. In this uh, episode, we speak more with Wu Ming Wan about uh, his recent book, which just came out in Italian uh, here in 2021, uh, La Coup di Complotto, which translates as The Q and Conspiracy, How Conspiracy Fantasies Defend the System, which presents a highly original and important analysis of the genesis and dangers of this strange fantasy. And in this second part of the interview, Wu Ming Wan explains to us uh, some of the broader issues that went into crafting that book and the way in which uh, today's conspiracy fantasies are entangled with many of the themes that listeners to our podcasts will be uh, interested in, including games, uh, the character and nature of fiction and the novel, and questions of activism and uh, counter-conspiracy as well. I wanted to follow up on some of the themes that I think are very close to our hearts and close to your heart as well, which is, you know, and I wanted to start maybe by going back to what you were explaining to us near the beginning of the interview about the activities of Luther Blissett, the kind of um, way that it anticipated live action role-playing and uh, augmented reality games uh, and, and sort of ask you, well, if, if this urge to debunk is not going to work, what will work? What can work? And, and yeah. here, I think we, we share with you a real interest in um, this kind of question of magic and, uh, and, and counter fantasy and counter gaming. Uh, and we also share, I think, uh, this fascination with the fun that people have in 
conspiratorialism and conspiracy fantasies, even though it can often be animated by incredible anxiety and can give rise to or give expression to profound hatreds, there's a sense that those who are um, playing these fantasies out are, are encountering some kind of collective joy, which is of course a, a misdirection of the, of the kind of joys that we perhaps would hope for in this world. So I wanted maybe on that basis to ask you, you know, how, if, if we're not just debunking conspir conspiracy fantasies, what are the kind of tactics that might be employed? Yeah, we need uh, new forms of enchantment, of re-enchantment of the world. We need uh, narratives that are flexible enough to keep in themselves the critical reasoning and enchantment. In the book, I uh, draw many examples from the world of magic, for example, from some acts by Penn and Teller. Uh, there are some uh, uh, magical acts by Penn and Teller in which they do the trick and then explain it. But the way they explain it adds more enchantment instead of spoiling the effect. That's more enchantment because you see how much work is behind the scenes, how much work is needed in order to do the trick. So you have a kind of a, I called it a second level wow, because the first level wow is when you see, when you see the magical trick. And uh, the second level wow comes after the explanation. At the end of the day, it's what we did with our hoaxes, the Luther Bissett project. The most magical moment was when we claimed responsibility for them and explained how we did it. That's what the real magical moment. It was a form of critical enchantment because people were enchanted. Wow, they did all this and they fooled the media. So it wasn't, uh, the real enchantment didn't come with the hoaxes themselves. It came with the explanation, with the reverse engineering. Let me add a few words about the kind of fun that uh, uh, people who believe in conspiracy fantasies have in believing them. Uh, conspiracy fantasies, don't just give answers to anger, frustration, impatience with the world as it is, discontent, uh, preoccupation about you being exploited, being discriminated or, or feeling disenfranchised, impoverished, all that kind of stuff. We, we talked about that, okay. But also they give answers to the need for wonder, for magic, for enchantment, for new angles from which to look at the world differently and feel different. Um, it doesn't matter that from those particular angles, the world looks horrible, you know, like in the QAnon narrative. The world is in the grip of uncontrollable forces, it's dominated by a global elite of satanist pedophiles, murderers, child rapists, uh, blood-sucking freaks, 
you know, it doesn't matter because wonder is not only about beauty, it's also about the uncanny, and it's also about the sublime. I think that this concept by Immanuel Kant, the dynamically sublime is very useful. I use it in the, in the book. Um, the feeling aroused by QAnon and other conspiracy fantasy corresponds to the dynamically sublime as Immanuel Kant defined it. Uh, that is a pleasure that has an indirect origin, an indirect cause, because it arises from uh, the feeling of, uh, he says, I think in English, it sounds like a momentary arrest of vital energies, okay? Followed by a more intense exaltation, okay? So, um, for example, Immanuel Kant talked about the pleasure of looking at a storm, a very violent storm, but knowing that you're safe because you're in your house and you look at bolts, you hear the thunder, you see uh, the pouring rain and the wind uh, destroying the woods uh, and, and the sheep running the risk of wreck, uh, wrecking. So you, you're horrified, but you're also exalted by that because you're in a position in which you can't uh, be... Uh, invested you can be hit by the storm but you see you can contemplate the power the immense power of nature the immense power of, of the storm so at the beginning you're frightened but then you realize i'm not running any risk myself so i can contemplate this as a moment, as a moment of uncanny beauty okay that's the dynamically sublime if you replace this uh, overpowering nature this omnipotence of nature uh, with the omnipotence of power, you have QAnon's narrative uh, because it arouses similar passion. Think, uh, think of it, uh, um, the world is controlled by powerful villains, but I know it, okay? Because I took the red pill. I see a reality that was previously hidden, hidden from me. At least uh, I see, at last I see the totality of the picture. It's a horrible picture, but I'm aware of it. So I have some sort of power now. I took the red pill. Okay. I know the truth. At first I felt, what's the word in English? Dismay. At first I felt dismay because of course the world is controlled by this horrible force, you know, you have millions of children kept as slaves in underground military bases uh, and uh, raped uh, in order, and, uh, you know, uh, and, and their blood is uh, uh, sucked uh, in order to uh, have adrenochrome, all that kind of stuff. It's horrible. At first I felt this pain, but now, now that I know, this reality, I feel that I'm a new person, a special person. I know what normies ignore. Okay, that's a dynamically sublime. Okay, um, conspiracy fantasies, especially the latest generation conspiracy fantasy like QAnon, uh, uh, functions as games also because of this. 
because you have a community of red-pilled people experiencing the dynamically sublime. The world is horrible, but we know it. And knowing it is empowering in itself. It gives us a paradoxical joy, a paradoxical pleasure. Okay, so at the end of the tunnel, starting from the bottom of a rabbit hole, uh, they see the light of a new human community, the red-pilled community. Uh, that's why the banking doesn't work, because it doesn't address these kind of feelings in any way. Okay, not only doesn't recognize the kernels of truth in a conspiracy fantasy, but they completely miss this aspect of believing in a conspiracy fantasy like QAnon. It's a form of enchantment. So we need to play on the ground of enchantment. Of course, with our critical reasoning, with our tactics in the most collective, collective way as possible, uh, because we need social movement addressing these kind of problems. We don't need the technicians. We don't need the, you know, uh, little small task forces of experts uh, working on critical enchantment. It's not a game that can be played by tiny minorities. We need social movements. We need uh, social conflict. We need struggles. We need an anti-capitalist agenda in order to properly work on this. I think this is a very good point to uh, ask a question that I had in mind as, as I was listening to your uh, beautiful description really of this, of this space of where wonder and critical thought meet and the potential that this meeting point has and how overlooked it has been in kind of our, uh, this process of debunking conspiracies. And I was going to ask you about precisely this question of, um, so to speak, scaling up or, or moving towards uh, the wi wider political field with that, from the starting point that you're suggesting, from the starting point of um, uh, embracing the power of uh, uh, well, the, the power of of, um, of magic um, and and of this critical reenchantment, and there are these elements that you so vividly described about the games that you have fabricated and the hoaxes which you inhabited as a collective, and it's been fascinating to hear the feelings that were roused in inhabiting those worlds. Um, but I'm wondering how you think whether, and I, and I know it's a difficult question and there might not be easy answers, but I am wondering how the extent to which, what other games can we envisage? Can we um, uh, open up to, um, to social movements to experiment with? Whether there are any, you know, what, what can be the kind of political articulation uh, an effective political articulation of these game worlds um, that you so um, so powerfully uh, sort of created. Well, uh, I think uh, that um, uh, it's uh, beyond uh, uh, it's beyond my possibility to envisage the political movements uh, that can 
that can uh, practice uh, the synthesis of enchantment uh, and uh, and uh, critical and critical approach. Uh, it's beyond my possibilities because we can't predict uh, uh, the way uh, social movements uh, form their own subjectivities. Uh, it's always a surprise. It's always a surprise, uh, and uh, what we can what we can do is to provide a toolbox. It's to uh, sharpen our tools, sharpen our concepts, have uh, uh, the most useful and effective concepts, the most suitable ones, uh, ready for when those social movements rise. Uh, we, we can provide the theory, we can provide uh, uh, the imagery, a set of uh, pictures, uh, or a set of uh, um, metaphors and even plot devices that can be used by social movements. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, we cannot predetermine uh, the subjectivity. We cannot uh, predict what kind of subjectivity will make use will make use of the toolbox. We made some mistakes in the past, as we mean, uh, twenty years ago. We kind of worked on the campaign for uh, the counter summit in Genoa in Genoa in, in July uh, 2001 it was a big, uh, a big event upcoming, people from all over the world coming to Italy in order to protest, uh, to take the streets, uh, in order to fight against neoliberal globalization. There was the G8 summit in town and we all felt that that would be a big moment, a crucial moment, a turning point. And it was, but in a completely different way from the one we, we, we thought, the one we expected, because it was a moment of savage police repression. A comrade died, Carlo Giuliani was, was shot to death by the Carabinieri, there was carnage in the streets, uh, and it was the beginning of the big defeat uh, of those movements, of uh, the movements of those era, which, you know, with an oversimplifying label were called the anti-globalization movement, but it completely misses the point, according to me, because it was against the neoliberal uh, governance of globalization. It's, uh, it's much more nuanced, it's much more complex. Than, than that it wasn't simply about anti-globalization. Nationalistic movements are against globalization in and of itself. Why did I say that we made mistakes? Because in the 2000-2001 period, we acted as kind of expert campaigners for the movement, uh, you know, like a, a commando of communication guerrillas. We, the former members of the Luther Business Project, uh, became uh, a sort of, uh, I don't know, of a specialized task force working on the imagery, on the imaginary of the movement in order to pave the way culturally, artistically, aesthetically, 
for the big demonstrations uh, in, in Genoa. We're kind of myth makers for the movement. We made a lot of mistakes because we uncritically aroused people's expectations and we understood we had made the very same mistakes we are describing Q in our novel because we drove people to Frankenhausen to the ultimate field day battle against the forces of evil. And of course, with that kind of imagination, that kind of imaginary, that kind of references, you end up defeated. We understood that there cannot be a specialized task force of communication guerrilla warfare experts, and you cannot play with the collective subjectivity of movements as though they were uh, your puppets. What we did uh, was, even in, in good faith, an inst- uh, it was an instrumental uh, use and even an instrumental exploitation of those energies, of those currents, of that uh, flux of imagination. And we talked about that a lot in our collective and decided uh, that we would never make that kind of mistake again. So uh, now we think uh, it's all about telling the right stories, providing the best uh, concepts, the best uh, interpretation uh, of a phenomena, enriching uh, the toolbox uh, for uh, those uh, who will come and uh, possibly use it. I think that, that makes a lot of sense and that sort of shifts away from the didactic Kind of approach to, um, yeah. to 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 what you were just describing, and and if I can just very quickly unpick this a little bit more, do you think that because you described I was I was interested in your description of those events in the two thousands and and obviously the anti globalization movement and the frustrations and the disappointments that uh, ensued and after the financial crisis and uh, I'm wondering whether you think that in our moment today there is more there is any change of mood and a, perhaps perhaps a more per- perceptiveness towards this kind of entanglement of the the mythical with the critical um more perhaps um whether you know amongst younger generations or whether you see a change of mood that is both that that in the way in which it's being its criticality might be expressed and and i'm, I'm thinking here you know in our work here we 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 are looking, um, uh, we're interested in how students uh, at universities are, are, the student politics is, is evolving in, uh, it, it encompasses different types of darker worlds and, and different use of online media. And of course, you know, we know about, we have all these critics about online digital um, destruction amongst people today and how these strange worlds of TikTok and all these memes and all that, uh. Kind of come together. So I'm wondering whether you see, because I'm I'm fascinated by the kind of criticality that you're describing, and, and I'm wondering whether you see around us some of that mood changing accordingly. And so there are some imaginations that emerging there that, that are more in sync with what you're offering, what you're describing. Well, um, we had uh, a year of insurgency, a very interesting insurgency, global insurgency immediately before the pandemic uh, stroke, 
We had uh, big uh, mass uh, movements uh, everywhere, from Chile to Northern Europe uh, to Black Lives Matter uh, in the US, Fridays for Future, Extinction Rebellion, uh, Northern Syria. So there, there was a, a wave of global insurgency and demonstration that was also very creative, working with uh, mythopoiesis. Uh, in intriguing ways, uh, even the frustrating debate on so-called cancel culture is a way of acknowledging that the recent wave of new social movements is dealing with issues of mythology, issues of collective memory, issues of historical contradictions and the way these historical contradictions have repercussions on our present, uh, there's a high level of consciousness, actually, which uh, previous movements probably had in a more uh, confusing way. For example, I, ca- I can witness that the movement, I, the movement I took part in the late 90s uh, at the turn of, of the century didn't deal that much uh, with uh, historical issues uh, and this kind of, you know, contestation, uh, this kind of protest uh, related uh, to cultural myths, uh, to the sedimentation of mythologies and toxic narratives uh, in in our collective associated life. That's uh, promising. Of course, the pandemic emergency kind of froze for a while uh, most uh, of those energies, but I'm seeing those energies restarting, uh, being rekindled right now. Many movements actually didn't freeze, not even during the pandemic. For example, Black Lives Matter kept taking to the streets all the time, even during lockdowns. So it depends on the places. In some places like Italy, uh, the pandemic emergency was seemingly deadly for social movements. Now things are starting up again. Uh, I think that the kind of stuff the Luther Research Project uh, used to elaborate, used to work on, used to research, used to do experiments with uh, is exactly the same stuff that these new movements are uh, trying to to tackle, trying to understand, uh, trying to to use uh, for their own purposes. And I've noticed you're obviously you're talking a lot about about myth making and the ways in which myth making is charged by, you know, emotion, affectivity, the sort of mythopoesis. Um, so this creating shared narratives that stimulate collaboration and cooperation as well as confrontation. You know, I think of it in terms of a sort of like effective solidarity. And so I guess just kind of generally, maybe as we're kind of thinking about wrapping up, I'd love to ask, would you describe this sort of myth-making that's charged by affectivity as an aesthetics and a poetics? So essentially is the gamification toolbox then a sort of aestheticization and a poeticization of radical politics in your opinion? Yeah, when we talk about gamification, we mean uh, something different. We mean a corporate process uh, turning every aspect of uh, collective life, every context, every moment of communication into a competition with the ratings, records, uh, and stuff like that, uh, you know, with the likes uh, and little stars uh, and uh, little hearts. Uh, You know, gamification, it 
is, is that kind of stuff you experience on Facebook, is the kind of stuff you experience uh, as a content uh, uh, generator on YouTube, uh, is, is that the kind of stuff uh, that you experience uh, as a, an addict uh, of gaming, of uh, betting, uh, of gamification is a strategy of capitalism. When we talk about uh, these kind of uh, games, uh, we're not talking about the same games uh, we're talking about when we use the term gamification. And uh, I think that politics, uh, aesthetics are useful concepts, uh, useful terms uh, that we can use uh, to, to understand uh, these kind of strategies uh, and tactics. Of course, uh, the Luther Bisset project had uh, po- uh, poetics uh, because we had our way of doing things in, uh, in an elegant manner. We had uh, a poetical sense of what we were trying to achieve. It was also art. It wasn't only activism. It was even literature because we created stories with uh, proper characters and complex interactions between them. And we wanted them to be aesthetically and artistically satisfying. That's uh, completely different from the purpose, the intention, the aims that capitalist online gamification uh, has. I think it's not by chance that we're talking a lot about books. And, you know, I often mention Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum because uh, it provides us with uh, an incredible anticipation of what QAnon is. Uh, even uh, the, the, the fact that probably uh, QAnon started as a prank, uh, that's the plot of Umberto Eco's Foucault's Pendulum because there's a conspiracy fantasy that starts as a parody of conspiracy fantasies. Then people believe it's real and there are terrible consequences. That's the plot of Umberto Eco's novel. It's not by chance that we're talking a lot about novels, for example, the Illuminatus Trilogy, for example, The Enchantment of the Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon, uh, a lot of novels uh, were mentioned uh, and cited and quoted during the debate on QAnon. For example, Adrenochrome comes straightly from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thompson. In, in a way, we're always talking about literature, even when it's uh, unrecognizable at first. Conspiracy fantasies are always... Uh, they belong in the same world as literature. They are uh, distortions, uh, they are uh, paradoxical interpretations. They belong in the same world when you have literature and poetry and, and art. I mean, that helps us explain why they can achieve the dynamically sublime so powerfully, so easily, are so effective in uh, making people believe their stories because they use tropes that come from literature, that come from myth-making, that come from poetry in many ways. I think that my work is also a celebration of the ever unexpected and at the same time ever returning, ever resurfacing power of literature, of books. Many books 
overtly or indirectly have exerted a tremendous influence on the currents of imagination that flowed into QAnon. And at the same time, they provide us tools for understanding QAnon. I, I can make a quick list of books I, I kind of review in Lacou di Complotto, The Hammer of Witches, Malus Maleficarum, The Protocols of the Saviors of Zion, The Morning of the Magicians, uh, Michel Remembers, The Enchantment of Blood 49, The Illuminatus Trilogy, Foucault's Pendulum, Q. Why all these novels? Some of them are disguised novels written for evil purposes. For example, the Protocols of, Protocols of Elders of Zion. It's a disguised novel. Umberto Eco and, and other scholars uh, demonstrated very effectively that all the tropes in the Protocols are taken from novels, from Alexandre Dumas, Eugène Sue, etc. So why do novels remain important, even in the age of the internet, of social media, of gamification of online life? Why novels retain all this power? I think it's because we think in narrative frames, each of our thoughts fits into a story, a story that our minds keep unraveling. The textual type that comes most naturally to eyes is a narrative text. For example, a salesman pitch or um, a complaint filed to a company or a police report, uh, they all texts that tell a story. But uh, the strongest and most effective narrative uh, techniques the ones that engage our minds in the most effective way are the techniques that we experimented for centuries in the novel form. Okay, novels are still the best way of telling a story. Uh, nowadays, you have TV series. They are often scripted in a brilliant and complex way. Some of them are real masterpieces, but as far as telling stories is concerned, all their techniques uh, come from the novel. In, in the Luther Brissett project, uh, we use them in order to fabricate those complex uh, hoaxes that, that we inhabited for long periods of time before self-exposure, before explanation. But in, in a way, they were novels. We wrote novels. The difference was that we didn't publish them as uh, books, but we staged them. They came to life uh, in the real world, but they were novels in a way. We also used those techniques for doing investigative reporting, uh, counter-investigation, as, as I said at the beginning of this conversation. In Lacudi Complotto, I celebrate all this. I celebrate the power of literature in all its uh, ramifications, in all its, its uh, consequences, and repercussions. I'm so glad in some ways that our conversation with you has come back to its beginning with, a, with quite a nice form that mirrors the novel in some way. I feel like we've, we've uh, enclosed a spectrum of topics that, uh, that, that speak to each other really, really well. Um, and I think we should, we should let you go and thank you for 
spending time with us today, explaining the work of Wuming in the past, Luther Blissett, also some of the key concepts in your recent book. I very much hope that this book will be translated into English soon. Um, I think it's what you've presented is extremely important and very refreshing uh, in terms of uh, a perspective on both the dangers of uh, conspiracy fantasies, but then also the way that we have to transform our thinking in order to confront the conspiracy fantasy, but also confront, as you point out, the systems that uh, animate those uh, and, and give animus to those uh, conspiracy fantasies. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real a real pleasure as a longtime reader of, uh, of your work. It's also an honor to be able to speak with you. Thanks to you. It was a great conversation. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, so what I really, really liked about uh, the kind of general thrust of a, of a lot of what Wu Ming Wan was saying is they're talking about, you know, this kind of like QAnon as this plane of imminence, this community of fans and haters and uh, and how it feeds into a kind of like rhizomatic fascism, which I think is like a really interesting concept that comes up in some of their other discussions as well. This idea that, you know, like the rhizome as this sort of... Uh, thing that is underground and has no direction, no beginning, no end. It's kind of this dispersed thing. Maybe it's even an infinite game. Um, and they talk about how the kind of rhizomatic fascism is something that allows for multiple entry points. It's non-hierarchical. It's sort of, there is no like central spine or theme to it. And so uh, in the ways that Wu Ming Wan is talking about, you know, QAnon as a manifestation of a kind of rhizomatic fascism and conspiracy in general as this, I thought it was really productive uh, in our conversations today to think a bit about like a rhizomatic anti-fascism and what would this kind of like non-hierarchical, non-situated, non-grounded form of like a magical kind of radical politics be. And I think that was really productive for me and, and really exciting this idea of like a kind of rhizomatic anti-fascism. So that's what stuck out, I think, for me in our, in our conversation today. Yeah, and I think that that really I agree, and I had a I thought also of how helpful helpfully this uh, proposal that Woman One makes around this merging of magic and critical thinking in the way they establish it in their collectivity, um, also for really un unraveling and kind of challenging really the, this whole the way in which the debate around conspiracy and fake news uh, has been set up uh, both on the left and the right uh, how it invites us to uh, examine that debate from a with a completely different lens and, and we how necessary is this in our current moment and I in particular I thought that there is something very useful in the way in which the process of explaining and the process of distorting come together in their framing, in that lens that they offer. That in other words, what they're suggesting as a collective is not a struggle between different modes of explaining, nor between a mode of explaining and a mode of distorting, as these could, could be seen as the main ways in which we, 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 we listen to, we, we understand the current uh, phenomenon of fake news and conspiracy, but rather it's, it's a question of a, a, 
a, a, a quite a, a collective and playful and co counter-conspiratorial way of merging, distorting, participating in distortion, but also in explanation. And, uh, and uh, the, the, the two uh, sort of prop each other, they help each other and, and they give strength to each other. So I, I, thought, I thought that as a, it was a very neat way to kind of capture what is missing in current explanations and what, how they can, how our perspective can be improved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was thinking about, uh, especially as we drew to the end of the interview, I was thinking about the work of Frederick Jameson, um, the great Marxist literary critic. Um, and already in the mid eighties, Jameson, who was then also writing what would become some of his most famous work on postmodernism, um, postmodernism as the cultural logic of late capitalism, was also working on a concept that I think has become very useful to many of us in the in the uh, you know years since, which is of cognitive mapping. And here, Jameson sort of offers that we humans make sense of the world by creating a kind of cognitive map of our social reality uh, that explains causality, essentially, like why things happen, what makes things move. And, and successful ideological orders afford us uh, the resources to create these cognitive maps um, for better and for worse. And, and counter ideologies, you know, and for, Mark, uh, for, for Jameson, he's most interested in Marxist counter ideologies, what they offer us is an alternative cognitive map that explains how the world moves, why social forces work as they work, and how that impinges on our own life. Um, and what he points out is that as, as we move into the period of late capitalism, uh, with the kind of collapse of the, the um, age of three worlds, as Michael Denning point, uh, puts it, uh, you know, with the sort of Soviet bloc and the American bloc and then the so-called third world, uh, the, all the cognitive maps that were on offer that explained how the world works started to come apart. And further, you had this kind of massive change in literary and cultural forms, uh, largely thanks to the proliferation of um, various forms of commodified media, notably film and television and later digital forms and the internet, which means that nowadays people tend to live with a completely fragmentary uh, cognitive map of reality. And so uh, Jameson suggests that um, the conspiracy theory and that work already in the early 80s, mid 80s, that conspiracy theory or conspiratorialism or conspiracy fantasy is what he calls the poor man's uh, cognitive map. It affords the bearer of that map a sense of cohesion, a sense of why things are happening the way they are, a way of uh, navigating through the chaos. And um, I, I think that's a really important uh, point to bring up, especially in as concern wooming one's uh, discussion about the importance of the novel and the way that the conspiracy fantasy has a kind of novel-like form, something that he takes up from Umberto Eco's uh, analysis of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and the way that that fictitious document drew on a long history of kind of sensation fiction in order to uh, become so seductive. Um, and I think it's really fascinating to think about them in the late 90s and early 2000s through the Luther Blissett project 
also using the novel form, but using the novel form as a kind of protocol or a set of dispositifs, tools, frameworks for creating alternative zones of reality that then reveal and flip over the reality that we're in. And I feel like there's something very, very interesting there for us uh, as we think through what it means to create games that fight back, that not only debunk and disenchant, as is the habit of you know so many of those of us, uh, those in our profession of academe, but actually thinking about like how do we create the kinds of seductive forms uh, that are going to be able to capture the imagination, to capture attention, and then transform the imagination. Um, that is a fascinating and uh, challenging uh, um, sort of question, but I think it's one that oddly gives me a great deal of hope and excitement about both our project and many projects that are coming out right now. Um, I think it'll be a very interesting time to see what radical politics mean in an age uh, of, you know, after after the conspiracy fantasies or during the conspiracy fantasies. You've been listening to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, season two of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. For more information about this podcast, to listen to other episodes, or to learn about the broader project of which it's a part, please visit www.conspiracy.games. Thank you.